Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Today on the show, we have Stacy Schiff. Stacy is a prize-winning author of several biographies on an interesting and varied group of people. She's written on Benjamin Franklin, Cleopatra, the French pilot and author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and her book on Vera Nabokov was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Today, we're going to speak with her about her new book entitled Sam Adams, an American Revolutionary. Stacy, welcome to History 605. Thanks so much, Ben. Delighted to join you. Uh, I heard you speak recently at the event at uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, as the states came together to prepare for America's 250th birthday. 2026 isn't that far away, so in the run-up to that, we'll be doing some more podcasts on what is partic- uh, what is a show generally about South Dakota and the Northern Plains, but we also want to lace in some shows about the founding era. And so this would be the first of those as we start season three. Uh, And it strikes me that uh, having read your book now, Sam Adams is certainly a prime mover in the American Revolution. But he's he has fallen into obscurity in many in many ways. I think your book works to rescue him from the side of the beer bottles that we see and put him back into the thinking about how our nation began. Uh, in fact, you write, he's the sole signer of the Declaration of Independence to come down to us as an incendiary and a beer. Uh, where did you find him? Uh, why did you start writing the book? And what was it about Sam Adams that prompted you to, to put the time and effort into this great biography? As, as best I can reconstruct it, um, I had spent, my previous book was about the Salem witch trials. So I had spent the previous five or six years in what felt like a very dark, damp place, which was 1692 Salem. And one of the burning questions that year is not just what afflicted the young girls and why was the prosecution so robust, but but who was willing to stand up and raise a hand um, in the name of justice? Who was willing to say this, something is clearly amiss here, perhaps we should reconsider our procedures? And that was a very dangerous question, obviously, to ask at, at a time of, an, of a moral panic, because generally, if you expressed any skepticism about the witchcraft courts, you were rewarded with a witchcraft accusation yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of the earliest people who, one of the one of the people who raised his, his hand at the end of that year in late October is a Bostonian named Thomas Brattle, a sort of Anglican-leaning 35-year-old Harvard-educated, very wealthy man who wasn't really allied with any of the sort of religious or civic authorities who were prosecuting the witchcraft. And he was kind of burning in my mind as someone who, you know, a straight-spined, straight-speaking New Englander. And I, I sort of wanted more of him. I think I was looking for someone who had that sort of heroic glow to him in some way. And, and at the same time I had gone back, I was working with the material in my 
previous book about Benjamin Franklin. And there in the middle of a page was Samuel Adams, someone whom I had written into a book and really thought very little about. He, I, he was very much at that point secondary to John. Obviously, that equation reverses itself earlier. And I had just kind of, you know, he, I sort of had a glancing reference to Samuel Adams and suddenly started thinking, well, who is this person who kind of walked into my book and I never really thought about? Mm-hmm. And the more I began to look into um, the literature, I discovered what you, you alluded to earlier, which is that all of his contemporaries name him as the sort of preeminent presence in those years, which are the run up to the revolution. Thomas Jefferson outright calls him the most active, the earliest and the most persevering of the revolutionaries. So it was sort of those two strands coming together, my searching for someone who had that kind of moral conscience and that sort of confidence in his unpopular beliefs and the fact that I had this kind of spectral presence in, a, in an earlier book that I had never really thought to examine. Well, you, you certainly demonstrate that he's always in the middle of things, uh, certainly from the Boston perspective of the 1760s up to the revolution. I wonder if you can kind of set the scene, though, for us. Many people view the revolutionaries as being opposed to taxes. That wasn't really the issue at hand, was it? And I wonder if it was all kind of an argument about taxes, but it fundamentally was an argument about the right to lay taxes and levy taxes and so forth. What was it about Sam's education that alerted him to the the proper use of authority, the rights of a of an Englishman and so forth, the role of the king and parliament. What was it about his education that kind of set him up for this? Well, I think two things are, two things are key here, and both of them will contribute to both his ideology insofar he has an, insofar as he has an ideology and to all of his actions. First of all, he's he's born to a very prosperous family, and his critics later will write him off as a sort of low life, as someone who was very happy to upset an established government because he was himself a penniless bankrupt. So he had no real interest in an established government, but they forgot that he was a man who actually came from privilege and had chosen um, to live for his ideas and to not apply himself in any sort of ambitious or as he would have said, avaricious, you know, capitalistic way, Mm -hmm. but to really invest in the ideas that had been formed in him at Harvard, where he has both, he earns both a BA and an MA. And in the course of getting the graduate degree, he writes a thesis, um, which essentially, in a very sort of prescient way, explores the question of whether a people owes allegiance to a king who invades their rights. Where where does that equation between the the rights of power and the rights of the people, which is, as he puts it, a very, you know, sacred equation, where does that equation begin to fall apart? And what kind of allegiance do a people owe to a ruler who tramples their rights? And it's a question which he had a sort of, there may have been a familial reason why he took to examining that question, which we can talk about if you want, but Mm -hmm. that for him is the burning question through the 1740s, certainly. And that really long predates efforts at taxation um, on Great Britain's part, but it does speak to the question which really will loom over the next 20 years, which is the, or 30 years, which is the question of how to codify the relationship between Great Britain and her colonies. And that's really what the struggle mm-hmm. is about to a great extent, you know, to see, to, to, to ask the question of whose rights, where, where pe- people's rights begin and end. That's a rich vein to travel on. And we'll, we'll come back to that um, idea. But you mentioned his family and his, his well-to-do upbringing. So what does his dad do? 
So his father is a molster. I know we'd like to turn him into a brewer, but alas, he right. prepares the grain for <laughs> brewing. It's as far as it goes. Yeah. Um, um, I really wish I could satisfy our craving to make it, to make him into the man on the beer bottle. Um, right. And he, and he some to, to the, to the astonishment of, of, of people in Boston who aren't necessarily fond of Samuel Adams senior, he makes a great deal of money at it. He's very successful in his, in his molstering. And he owns a, a very beautiful house overlooking Boston Harbor and a wharf of his own. And that is where that okay. is where Samuel Adams Jr. or Samuel Adams will come of age. But then his father gets involved in this kind of, what is it, the land bank? Um, describe that bit of a um, controversy. And it involves politics and finances and so forth, this kind of nexus of a lot of powerful things. And it winds up ruining his family and echoes throughout the rest of his life. What What is the scandal that, that takes his family back? That's right. It, it's an economic issue that, as often was the case in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, mutates quickly into a political one. Essentially, in, as in many colonies, there had been a shortage of, of hard currency um, in the in the years when Adams is coming of age, and, and a crippling shortage of currency, in fact. And so is founded by nine... Um, well-off, but not um, hugely well-off Boston men, nine very enterprising Boston men, including Samuel Adams' father, a land bank, which was essentially a, a, a venture where um, mortgages could be issued, which were secured by land holdings, because many people were rich in land, very few people had any currency. And this was a venture that had been encouraged by, um, had been discussed with and encouraged by the then governor of the, of the colony, who, who embraced the idea. But once it was launched, it was an idea that um, on every level irritated the ruling elite um, in the Massachusetts mm. Bay Colony for two reasons. First of all, it um, inflated the role. It, 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 it threatened to inflate their ranks with these other people who were sort of newcomers to, um, to, to roles of economic leadership. And it would have introduced, um, they claimed, inflation, but currency that they could not use, obviously, with their creditors in London. So it would have been to them useless currency. Oh. Um, for both of those reasons, they complain very loudly. The governor complains to London and to make a very, um, rich, but long story short, um, London cut, takes draconian action and shuts down the land bank very peremptorily. And in shutting it down, it essentially makes the, the early, the, the nine men who had founded the bank responsible for all of the bank's debts jointly and severally, which is to say it bankrupted Samuel Adams Sr. Because suddenly he is on the line for these monies that have been issued. And what he what what he had participated in is suddenly seen as a criminal venture. So there's right. this stain on his reputation. And obviously there's this kind of curse on his house, economically speaking. Um, he will die not long thereafter, but but Samuel Adams will spend years fending off creditors, trying to protect his estate from being repossessed by the sheriff, threatening people who try to buy it out from under him, and essentially trying to somehow bring justice to this chapter. Hard to believe that that, that, that moment of kind of imperial overreach didn't connect with his thinking, but we have no, it's a, it's a perforated line that we can draw there, but this one sort of crushing moment and his later thinking about the crown and, and, and sure. where the crown's rights and privileges begin and end. A perforated moment. That's a wonderful phrase. Um, uh, I wonder if you could kind of set the scene then for how is Massachusetts governed at the time? Who Who is the governor, which seems to be his nemesis throughout the entire book or throughout he makes his career with this 
the, the governor and lieutenant governor, who are these people who put them there um, and what's their role? As a, what is the job of a colonial governor? Um, it's a, such a great question. I think we pay so little attention to it. So the governors are appointed by London. And for the most part, they have been, they're usually men from Great Britain who sail to the colonies, usually with relatively little knowledge of what is happening in the colonies. And I should say that every colony was administered differently, which also becomes an issue, but but in the Massachusetts context. So that the person who becomes Adams's nemesis for the most part in these years is Francis Bernard, who's the London appointee, who will then leave the office to his lieutenant governor, Thomas Hutchinson, Adams's other great nemesis. And Hutchinson has the distinction of being the first and only, actually, royal-born, uh, uh, Massachusetts-born royal governor. He's the one person who's actually a native son who ascends to this position, um, which is a, which is a fairly lucrative post. Francis Bernard actually had been elsewhere in the colonies, and he, um, he he once things begin to be heat up a little bit in Boston, he begins to look around and sort of say, you know, isn't there a isn't there a calmer place that you might send me? He's sort of writing to London with, you know, with with great distress, sort of saying, you know, this isn't really what I counted on. These people are very obstreperous. And he's he's looking around the colonies and kind of weighing what the different positions, you know, pay and what their climates are like and whether the people are perhaps a little more obliging. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very much a, a pensioner, as Adams would have seen it. It's someone who's being paid by the crown to to execute the laws of the crown and Mm -hmm. and beneath the royal governor. And and until this point, until Adams's day, very much in sync with the royal governor are an upper and a lower house of house of legislative house, house of representatives and the governor's council. And what it is one of Adams's, I suppose, great accomplishments, not, not the way Francis Bernard would have seen it, but the way Adams would have seen it to deprive the governor of the support of his governing council. Adams will very much um, inject some space between governor and um, the houses of the legislature and make those two bodies more accountable to the people and less in sync with um, the royal appointee at the top of the ladder. Right. So are the legislature, they're elected by the people of Massachusetts. And that's yeah. right. And the, ho- and the House chooses the council. As Thomas Hutchinson will say later, he, he'd he never seen a government that was um, so directed by the wishes of one man because Adam seems to... Con- to control even the choices for the governor's council at various points. Yes. So let's let's talk about that. You, you talk about how Adams, Sam Adams, um, gets himself elected to the to the um, legislature and so forth. But he also does other things. Um, he 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 has this amazing and sophisticated understanding of the media, uh, a term we would use today. He's he owns a newspaper and he influences so much of what goes on in other newspapers. How, where, do, where do you think that skill comes from? Or does he learn it over time? Or he's not only good with words, but he understands the business of it. And it's very clear he can get the message out. Um, he's clearly recognized um, generally for the fluency of his pen in the protests against the Stamp Act and the opposition to the Stamp Act. The House of Representatives looks to him to phrase their their response to the crown. So, you know, that's already interesting that they're looking for someone who isn't a member of the House um, to speak for them. And in fact, they will tone down what Adams submits to them. And it's because of that opposition, I guess I should say, that he is then himself elected to the House of Representatives um, in the wake of all the Stamp Act unrest. But he seems to have just this intuitive sense, both of what changes men's minds and of how to draw 
a set of sort of incipient ideas out of the air and commit them to the page. And very early on in the 1740s, he's involved in a newspaper venture. He's writing pseudonymously, so we don't know entirely. We don't know exactly which columns are his, although there's Mm -hmm. a lot which sounds like him and some of which I've identified certainly as his. But it's this very idealistic rephrasing of this question of, you know, who is essentially who is in charge of our destiny? Is it we or is it these people who are 3,000 miles away? As you write, I mean, it's a constant argument. And he doesn't so much seem to have an issue with George III. It's Bernard and Hutchison who are the ones that he really goes after time and time and time again. Uh, I think that's really important to keep an eye on because there is an enormous, you know, there's a political philosophy at work here. There's a sense of um, of a colony having come to maturity and having outgrown um, its imperial master, so to speak. But there's also a very deep-seated personal stripe here. And you see it with Samuel Adams, you see it with John Adams, you see it with Dr. Warren, you see it with a great number of the patriots, that there is a, a contempt for and a an irritation with the sort of Massachusetts elite, the men like Thomas Hutchinson, who are the, who have their fingers on every lever basically in the colony and mm-hmm. have had for a generation or two in most cases, and seem unaware of the fact that they represent a sort of entrenched elite to the rest of the, to the rest of the colony. And so much of this is Adams, Samuel Adams, putting Hutchinson's face, making Hutchinson the villain of the piece in a way, putting those, um, royal appointees and eminent merchants, making them look like they are the faces of tyranny, making theirs look like they are the faces of tyranny. Right. Do you think he's he's maneuvered? He doesn't want to get too out in front of the law, right? I mean, he could be arrested for treason and at certain points. It, it's very likely a possibility to do that, that if he goes after the king directly, it's too dangerous. But if he picks on the governor, the king has room to maneuver. I think there's a very wily streak, certainly, in Adams. His, his great political mentor, James Otis, at one point suggested that all of Great Britain sink into the ocean, but he exempts the king because he knows that if he suggests it sinking the king, that would constitute treason. Right. So I think the, the question of treason is always you know, very close to everyone's minds. And Adams is at many points told that he's about to be arrested um, for sedition or for treason, that he's about to be deported to Great Britain for trial. And he's certainly aware of the fact that he's coming very close to the line and maintaining his distance. But I feel as if his, his, real, his real problem here is with parliament and with the mm-hmm. king's ministers. And, he, and that is not only out of loyalty to the king, but that is actually the way he truly feels because he constantly articulates this argument as, um, you know, the king is not necessarily in the wrong, but the king may be misadvised by his ministers to say that the people here in Massachusetts who are, who have come to to adjudicate colonial matters, really know what's going on in the colonies. They can mis- they can and they have misrepresented us in their in their writings to in their in their communications with London, and that's and that's really where his where the first and where the initial bit of um, collision begins to begins to come in. Uh, you say at one point he he presides over Boston through quote falsehoods and subterfuges, um, and he also he seems to have a clear set of principles that he illuminates in his in his columns where he uses pseudonyms and so forth. Um, it's it's clear though he doesn't if he ever had 
kind of a master plan down on paper. It, it was burned or doesn't survive, and he probably never had it. Um, I get the sense that he's not sitting there with his group of friends, you know, like a like a business school um, MBA project would today where you do a SWOT analysis and this kind of stuff. He, he's got all that kind of intuitive in his mind. Um, and, and another part you say, he's he appears allergic to plans. Might there be some wisdom in not having a plan, but just solid <laughs> principles? I, I think you're absolutely right that there was there was no flow, flow chart, and there certainly couldn't have been case studies because this had never yeah. been tried before. So, so, <laughs> so much for the for the for the um, business degree. He's he's very much allergic to long range planning, and he makes that clear at one point. He he tells John Adams as much, and and John is utterly floored by this confession. On the other hand, Hutchinson will later say that Adams is the first to set his mind on independence. And, you know, mm. I don't think we should necessarily trust Thomas Hutchinson, although he's an awfully good historian and usually fairly precise in his, in his observations. I do think that Samuel Adams could see where this was going and was willing to be, and I think this may have been one of his greatest gifts, um, very nimble in essentially allowing Great Britain to make the next mistake and then exploiting that mistake as best he could. Well, he's clearly in the middle of every mistake from the from the Boston Massacre, which is this this unprecedented violent event, and you you explain it uh, really well in in how how that event unfolds and so forth to the Boston Tea Party to the to Paul Revere's ride. Sam Adams is always kind of in the middle of it without physically being in the middle of it. It seems um, he's a master at that. Well, how's he not arrested? I guess I kept I kept thinking at one point when the soldiers certainly land. There's two regiments sent. I got a kick out of the out of the phrase when uh, General Gage in, in New York asked the asked um, the Massachusetts governor at one point, "Would you like one regiment or two? <laughs> in other words, you need help, buddy, and I need to send you something." Even that is such a fascinating, you know, correspondence because Bernard really desperately wants soldiers. This is yeah, the royal governor. He's he's feeling surrounded and outmaneuvered, but he knows that if he asks for them, he'll have to pay the price because he will have been the one to sort of to have essentially invited occupiers into town. So he can't really ask. So he's sending signal after signal in sort of fairly coded roundabout way, basically saying they're out of control, help. And right. finally Gage with, you know, the greatest of courtesy says, okay, would you like one regiment or two? And, and even, that is, <laughs> even that is done by special messenger and confidential manner because Bernard is so worried that he's basically about to be clobbered over the head if he's, he's seen as the person who has invited soldiers into Boston. Well, and then, and then by early 1770, that those two regiments become involved in this, in the Boston massacre, the murder of these uh, protesters and these uh, activists and so forth, including Crispus Attucks, uh, African American, um, who's murdered in this kind of first, in some ways, they're the first shots of the revolution. Um, what what becomes conspired of that, and John Adams is on one side of this, his cousin, and Sam is on the other. And um, I'd like to get in the, in the minds between the, these two cousins. Is, uh, explain the, the importance of the, of the event and the Boston Massacre and Sam's using of that to persist to get Hutchison and, and Bernard. I sure. I should just go back, because I didn't answer your question as to why he's not arrested. I, I think repeatedly there is the question of his arrest. And at every juncture, it is decided that to arrest him is to 
detonate something nobody wants to detonate. And he knows Mm -hmm. on some level that he is protected by that. And that's certainly the case by 1775 when, to jump ahead for a second, Mm -hmm. General Gage's orders actually are to arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams. The assumption in London being that if those two malefactors could simply be rounded up and deported, this entire resistance thing would fizzle out and everything would go back to normal. And very quickly, Gage realizes he thinks that can be done when he arrives. For various reasons, he he procrastinates. By the time the order comes to do so, he realizes it's too late and that, in fact, to arrest them is to is to invite serious consequences. Adams is masterful with the Boston Massacre. I mean, he really has his hand, has his arms completely around this. Um, so, yes, that's this is this crucial moment where soldiers fire on civilians with five casualties and months later at Hutchinson's insistence wanting to separate the trials as much as he could from that horrible evening um the case is tried with John Adams defending the soldiers um so yes the conversations between John and Samuel Adams that summer must have been quite fascinating but we have no record of them ultimately um the soldiers are for the most part exonerated the the, the captain who was in charge is exonerated most of the soldiers will walk free and two with only a light punishment But Samuel Adams doesn't stop there. Um, Everyone else, of course, at this point is very ready to go back for for things to go back to normal and for the town to quiet. Um, They're exhausted really by this year of savagery and and the consequent trial. Samuel Adams does two things. He essentially sets about relitigating the entire trial um, in the newspapers over the six months following the trials. Mm. Um, and he uses every manner of every bit of ammunition you can imagine from, from the truthful to the far less truthful. Um, at one point about Christmas addicts, he says, you know, he, yes, he was holding a, you know, a stick, I think it is, but the soldier was holding a gun and he's only been accused of manslaughter. Why was there any, why was there necessarily any threat on addicts' part or of a, um, of one of the victims who, who confesses on his deathbed that he, forgives the soldier who had fired on him because the soldiers had been provoked. Adams will write, first of all, this man didn't say this under oath. He only said it to the doctor at his bedside. And second of all, his landlady said he was a rather nasty fellow. And thirdly, he was a Roman Catholic. How can we believe him? <laughs> he's, he's really dredging up everything he could dredge up. He, you know, he casts, he casts all kinds of doubts on the jurors who, who hadn't really known the witnesses. He's, he's just, he's just sputtering in every possible direction. And he does that very effectively on the front page of the Boston Gazette for months on end. Um, And then at the same time, he will help to organize what becomes known as the Boston Massacre Oration, which is a yearly, very sentimental, very moving address. It's given um, to commemorate, obviously, the victims of the Boston Massacre. The honor of delivering it falls to someone who is a usually a a promising, a young and, and rising political star. It was a huge honor. And then the, the oration is printed afterwards, so it's read throughout the colonies. And it's okay. to remind people, obviously, of you know Boston's suffering, Boston's martyrdom, of what, of what has happened to this town that has been cruelly occupied by rapacious soldiers. And it has a tremendous um, emotional appeal. So Adams is doing all of that while in the years following 1770, everyone else is kind of trying to pick up where they left off. Thomas Hutchinson is very quietly behind the scenes trying to pick off Adams's allies and to eliminate all opposition. And everyone is hoping that the colonial relationship will calm down. But it doesn't. It seems like the Brits, um, well, we go from there. It's not a straight line, certainly, but we wind up at the uh, 
one act, uh, one legal act, one passage of law after another to try and raise taxes. The, the Brits are uh, sinking in debt and the colonies are costing them money and they're trying to make, it just seems like it's a fairly reasonable expectation. Hey, you, you guys cost us, cost the crown money. You should pay your way. And Adams's rejoinder to that is uh, essentially kind of like we talked about at the first part. Well, we don't have any problem paying our way, but we should have a say in paying our way. Um, and and yet the Brits uh, or Parliament seems to consistently not hear that that piece. Or do they? It's such a great question. There are a few people who hear those cries. Mm-hmm. Adams is Adams is, uses every possible line in, in response to those um, demands. I mean, he basically, the, the problem here is that the colonies are not represented in the body that is taxing them. So as Adams puts it, you know, they have as much power in parliament as they have to choose the next emperor of China. They are entirely disenfranchised. So the question isn't the taxation, it's the representation piece. Right. And at one point he, he actually, in, in sort of typical fashion, goes, goes so far as to say, look, our governments are entirely parallel. Why why are you taxing us when we should be, ta- we could be taxing you. We just reverse the equation since the <laughs> system is the same on both sides of the ocean. Um, so, so that's really the sticking point for him. So take us through the tea party. Um, what's, what's the issue there about taxing and representation and then the costumes and the, and the planning and so forth. Uh-huh. Again, this is a miscalculation on, on London's part because in 1773 with the East India company, tea rotting in warehouses because there's a a surplus of tea, they fail to realize that tea is the only dutied item in America at that moment. And so therefore, any discussion of a tea duty is going to be a very, very combustible subject. But but in order to bail out the East India Company, and at the same time to um, undo the smugglers who have been making quite a bit of money on the sale of tea in the colonies, and to remind the Americans... um, of parliamentary sovereignty, um, the British decide that they will change the structure of how tea is sold and cut out the middlemen and sell this East India Company company tea directly to the colonies. And in doing so, they pretty much alienate everyone, including the middlemen, the the upper class merchants who had been selling the tea. So it's a colossal misstep on their parts. But the question becomes, as the tea sales for to several American ports, what to do about this, how to express um, their disregard for this new piece of legislation in the colonies. And and obviously every colony is, every one of the four cities to which the tea is sent is having different conversations about how to proceed. Mm. Thomas Hutchinson is sitting in Boston, hoping that Massachusetts tea will not arrive first because he's very um, wary of what will happen in a more restive town than might happen elsewhere. He really would like New York's or Philadelphia's tea to arrive first, but alas, um, the passage is shortest. The ships make their way first to Boston in December of 1773. And there have been a series of town meetings preceding the arrival of the tea in which Adams has been very instrumental, as has a committee that he had helped to found earlier called the Committee of Correspondence, which rather conspicuously over these days records that no business was transacted. That's the only time they ever mention in their notes that no business was transacted, which seems a little suspect, hmm. but, but the tea ships arrive. And, and then, and then there's a, then there's a showdown over this question of um, whether the tea can be unloaded or not. Essentially the, the people would like the tea to be returned to great Britain. Um, but colonial law would require that, um, that it pay a duty in order to, that it be, that it be passed through the port, 
without a duty in order to do so. Um, so there's a so there's a complete showdown at this point between um, the people and the poor owner of the first ship, the Dartmouth, mm-hmm. um, at which the owner, um, Captain Roach, is told that he could should go to Thomas Hutchinson to apply for a special permit um, to leave Boston and to sail directly back to Great Britain without unloading his cargo. And Hutchinson, at this point, is the only person who can issue that permit. Um, so in a very dramatic evening. In mid-December, he rides out, Roach rides out to meet with Thomas Hutchinson to demand, to ask if he can possibly have this um, permit. And Hutchinson, for various reasons, um, and suspecting that very little will happen other if he, if he, doesn't, if he fails to grant it, um, insists that he will not grant a permit. And at that point, when Roach returns to the meeting, um, there seems to already be quite a plan in action. And that is the event we all know as the Boston Tea Party, when um, thousands of people will make their way down to the wharf and um, several small groups of men lightly disguised. Um, they sound like they've just come from a sort of costume party. Some of them have old blankets wrapped around their heads and they're in old coats and red hats. Um, we'll in different groups board the ships and very carefully um, pull up the cargo from the hold and um, um, smash the crates open and mm-hmm. pour both the planks of the crates and the tea into Boston Harbor. And this is done with um, scientific precision, I should say, and observed by thousands of people. Although the next Mm. day, um, unsurprisingly, no one in Boston seemed to have seen a thing. Yeah, no one knows a thing. No one knows a thing. 342 (laughs) chests of tea in the water, but no one had seen a thing. Yeah, yeah. And and we have have lots of um, clues as to what was happening behind the scenes over the course of those previous days. We have... um, we have some direct quotations from the meeting itself where Adams is seen to be the most active party. We know that when Roach returns from the visit to Thomas Hutchinson's, Samuel Adams will say, clearly nothing more can be done for the salvation of this country. Later, people will say that that was, a, that was the, 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 the note to set off the, um, mm-hmm. the rioting. It doesn't seem to have been so at the time, but he's clearly very, very much the man of the hour. And although no one in Boston had seen a thing several months later, 12 men are deposed in London um, and they will all name Samuel Adams as the prime mover. So then is he more under the gun of, of arrest or, or is that fear of making things even worse, kind of keeping him safe? I think that the fact that no one had seen a thing, I'm not sure he ever would have known of those depositions, but I think the fact that no one had seen a thing in Boston. And Mm -hmm. as he put it, this had all been this had all been conducted with decency, unanimity, and spirit. I think the mm-hmm. fact that he feels this has been done in such an incredibly careful way and with such respect for all other property that was involved seems to protect him. Okay. He doesn't seem to note in, in all of Adams's correspondence, there are two things that never figure. One is any note of despair, and the other is any note of fear. Even mm. later, when he's warned in the 1780s, he'll get an anonymous note that there are assassination attempts being planned, and he'll shrug it off. He's he's an utterly dauntless, fearless character. Well, probably April of 1776 is a is a time when most of us would might be fearful about things, and he's in his he's got his network of of uh, messengers and writers, and the, probably the most famous Paul Revere and so forth. He's in the middle of that as well. Um, what's the what are the British after that evening and what happens to them that, that, sh- that we hear the, the shot heard around the world? 
the fabled beginning of the war. That for me was the point of entry for, with the book, because right. while I think we all think about Paul Revere jumping on that horse and riding west, and we have the, the rhythms of the poem all burned into our memories, none of us realizes that he, where he's going that night by orders of Dr. Warren is to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that they're about to be arrested. Okay. Um, and in fact, that was Gage's order um, from London to arrest the two of them. Um, what Gage seems to have ordered his men to do, however, and this is an, it's an interesting disconnect, is to collect the munitions that they know are being stored and conquered. Mm-hmm. And there is no written order, in fact. There's an order from London to Gage to arrest Adams. There's no order from Gage to his men to arrest Adams. So either there would have been a verbal order or that okay. order has been lost to us. Um, yeah. It was cl- so clearly the London letter was the one that was intercepted by the Patriots. Um, and obviously the, those riders, although they are looking for Adams that night when Paul Revere runs into them, have a second mission, which is to collect the, to collect what has been gathered and conquered. Um, Paul Revere will um, call at the parsonage where he knows that Adams and Hancock are staying and tell them that their arrest is imminent, they need to move. And there's a little tussle between Samuel Adams and John Hancock, not the first time there will be a tussle between the two of them, nor the last. Um, And Adams will ultimately prevail. Revere will actually ride later that night into an ambush from which he will escape and go back to the house. And when he gets back to the house late that evening, he finds that Adams and Hancock still have not moved. And finally, at that moment, (laughs) you can say there there are officers really just down the road to prevail upon them to, to do so. And Adams and Hancock trundle off in Hancock's carriage. So they are actually, as far as we know, crouching in the woods not far away when the first shots are, of the revolution are fired. Okay. So well, and Revere... Much, seen him very much behind the scene at the, at the same yes, time. Yes, but not yeah. too far behind the scenes. Uh, I think, if I recall right, Revere has a pistol at his head that night. Revere uh-huh. is the only one of them, interestingly, who has who is arrested and has a pistol at his head. And, and also, yeah. speaking of unflappable... Just on the edge of being disrespectful, but completely, um, utterly courageous through the entire, calmness could be utterly courageous through the entire episode, refuses to divulge the whereabouts of Adams and Hancock. Well, you, you talked a little bit about how you opened the book with that. I, I, I found, just as you're, you're writing, um, incredibly captivating, and it keeps the story moving along. You don't get, I, you know, I could bring... Um, uh, having a PhD in history and so forth, I could say, well, why isn't she talking more about the French and Indian war? Why isn't she talking about this, that, and the other? And I think as I got into your book, well, you're not, because it's not, that's not what the book's about, right? You're, you're setting it up, you're kind of taking things along that are central to the story, but then your, your prose too. I'm just going to read you a sentence that I was struck by the depth that this sentence covers. Um, Over the course of 1764, everything came together. The well-honed sense of vigilance, the hard luck stories, Adams collected in lieu of taxes, the resentment against the overeager, overreaching officials, the attention he had garnered for his early, unsigned prose, the stray grievances, and the chiseled logic. That that was such a fun sentence to read. I read it like five times. I said, I have to... Just tell her, uh, it, it exemplifies a lot of the writing in the book that just keeps things moving along and summarizes uh, so crisply uh, the, the story uh, from time to time. It's kind of wayposts along where you, where you make sentences like that, and, and it's just way, a great way for the reader to get caught up and to summarize everything he's doing. So 
Thank um, you, Ben. I mean, there's there's something that we didn't talk about in there. Two things, actually, I guess, which are how wayward are those early years of Adams's? I mean, he really mm-hmm. he really amounts to so little in those early years, and mm-hmm. he's really at loose ends. And it is British mismanagement in a way, um, British misjudgment, London London's various errors that put him on the map. I mean, if, were that not to have happened, it is interesting to you know, it's an interesting question. What would have happened to Samuel Adams? Um, but also because of those years that he spends largely in the streets of Boston, he's an interesting connector of the wealthier Bostonians and the innkeepers and the street and the shopkeepers and the men who work on the wharves. I mean, he really mm-hmm. knows his way around the town and knows is at ease with and in the good graces of pretty much all the constituencies in the town. And that right. sets him up to be Im- immensely effective in the next decade. Right. Well, it's very clear. He he can talk Locke and Hume and Blackstone with the best of them, but at the same time, he can he can talk to the guy down at the wharf loading ships, um, and he knows how to reach them. It's a singularly, immensely important talent that he has. Um, uh, it, just toward the end, well, I wonder if you could talk about how is he remembered as the war is over and later in life, he becomes governor, lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and stays in politics, but he kind of is maybe getting too stale and the memory of the the locals is not so friendly toward the end of his life. Um, How does that set him up for kind of his going into obscurity after the, after his passing? Yeah. The the last years are not his, um, are not crowned with glory. I have to say Um, in part, this is, a political issue. He's not a federalist. Um, he has mm. problems even co- when it comes to signing the constitution. He really is much more invested in this idea that there should be a union of sovereign states as a put. He's, he's very much at odds, obviously, with, with many of his former friends over political issues. Um, he retreats to Massachusetts. He's still very parochial. He's looking, I think, to some extent back to the past as opposed to forward um, to the future. He's still hailing back to a the kind of Christian Sparta that he had believed in initially, as opposed to this opulent, um, more capitalistic country that he has helped to found. And because of that, um, begins to really fall off the radar. He indeed serves as lieutenant governor and ultimately as governor, but more almost by default and out of respect than for any other good reason. He's not particularly effective in either post. I mean, I should also say he's quite old at this, except for Ben Franklin. He's older than most of these, most of the men we think of as the founders. Um, but he does himself no favors either in that he's um, he's a very diffident man. He's not, he's, he's generally a, a very courteous, decorous individual, interestingly, but he has no great interest in vaunting his own um, accomplishments. And right. Donald Adams will say to him at several points in these years, you really need to collect your writings. Um, they they alone will explain what has happened over these decades. There'll be essential reading on in various con- on various continents, and Samuel Adams never collects his papers. Um, so he, in a funny way, writes himself out of the story. Um, first, because he's generally a recessive character, and secondly, because he doesn't take that opportunity to, as others did, um, collect or publish his papers. And then, just politically speaking, he makes so many enemies, and and among them John Hancock, who's a very um, effective communicator and a very generous soul, so that by the time Samuel Adams himself comes to read some of the first histories of the revolution, 
um, he discovers facts that were, <laughs> which he was entirely oblivious because they were untrue, um, mm -hmm. including a, a sort of nasty report that he had, a, that he had opposed George Washington, which he had not. And so those, those are obviously things that have been planted by his enemies and they will prevail. So between his own sort of decrepitude and this sense that he was, um, part of the more anarchic provocative piece of the story that doesn't, isn't really what one likes to remember. We'd rather remember the very noble words of Thomas Jefferson and the fact that he has made these enemies, he will be shunted aside. All right. Um, from time to time you, you, you pop up to his, well, he's opposed to slavery and he keeps trying to write that into the, to the efforts, certainly in Massachusetts, as well as the federal level. And in the end, like many people seems to have to, he's, he's caught and trading it away. This is, um, what, what is he, I don't know if, if there's a records of this or so forth, but what is his um, feeling about having to give that up in order to get the Constitution done? Or We know only a little bit. I mean, the, the slavery question was something that, by which he was bedeviled from, from at least the 1760s, if not earlier. Mm -hmm. um, there had been numerous Massachusetts attempts to outlaw um, the slave trade in New England and in which he had been active and he will reject a slave when she, when someone tries to, to introduce one into his household. Um, when the constitution arrives, he hesitates because it has no bill of rights right. and the three objections that he mentioned, which we know he mentions, um, are the fact that it does not include a clause outlining the slave trade. Um, the fact that it does not include a clause ensuring freedom of speech and the fact that it does not include a clause allowing people to, to um, have guns. So those mm. are the three objections of which we know. There's a, there's a story that's sound, that has a sort of legendary glow to it of Paul Revere being the one to encourage him to sign nonetheless, despite his many reservations. I'm not sure how much of that, we, how much truth there is in that, but there was mm -hmm. clearly a certain amount of arm twisting to get Adams to sign this document, mm -hmm. which had been hammered out over, you know, so many days and nights and there was a real fear that he would not put himself behind it. Well, and Shay's rebellion kind of offers him a, or us, a window into his clarity of thought about that. He's saying, no, the, the, those who are rebelling in Western Massachusetts over um, what they thought was an unjust tax. He said, these are the, these, I think you said in, in your book, these are the laws justly made over you. Now you're compelled to follow them. This is a completely different deal. Exactly. And, it, and it's crucial yeah. because it's, you know, otherwise you could look at the, the work of Adams and say, well, he's obviously embracing and, and promoting rebellion at any moment and violence mm -hmm. at any moment. In fact, he's very much anti-violence, very much interested in, in prudence, in fact, and, and in, when it comes to violence into the kind of surgical strikes, which were the, which was the Boston Tea Party. Mm -hmm. But his real point in 1786 with Shay's Rebellion is you have recourse if you have, if you were participate in a democratic government and that recourse is at the voting booth. Um, your recourse, if you have a say in your own government does not involve um, any kind of, you know, any kind of violence whatsoever. And he draws a really firm line there. Well, I was wondering if we could wrap up with maybe Abigail Adams's comment that she respected his virtues, though I pity his weaknesses. <laughs> she's, she's a little bit more accommodating than was John, who, who sort of loses his taste for his cousin Samuel, who, who mm. had, we should have said, recruited him in the first place, and whom John had always looked up to with sort of starry-eyed admiration, um, and whom John obviously will eclipse later on when John goes to yeah. France. 
um, to, to assist Benjamin Franklin, people will think he's Samuel Adams and they'll, they'll greet him with tremendous respect. And he has, to, poor John has to say, that's not I, that's a different Mr. Adams, which <laughs> nobody believes. Um, but John pretty much at the end of his life writes off Samuel, first of all, as a fairly parochial character, someone who could not get his mind around this new America. And secondly, as a man who, as he, as he puts it in a really sort of um, horrifying line, someone who's, who has really been reduced to almost senility in his last years and, and is sort of a weeping, pathetic figure. And, and all John can say is he hopes he never has to suffer that fate and, and, and live that long. Yes, Abigail comes off better at the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> she usually does. She always uh, does, exactly. Yep. Abigail Adams, another another person of uh, the founding era that we could all stand to learn more about, I think. Um, I think it's Abigail who gives us the best um, assessment, really, of the Samuel Adams marriage. She talks about how charming he and his, it's his second wife, actually, how charming the two of them are, how unaffected they are together. Um, and how deeply in love. And it's the, I mean, thank goodness uh -huh. for Abigail, because it's really the only portrait we have of that marriage. Yes. I mean, you, Hannah, that's his second wife. Is that correct? Yes. That's, Bet that's, Betsy. 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 Hannah's okay. the daughter. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hannah's the daughter. Yes. Uh, well, my fumbling over, over the names kind of indicates uh, just the lack of how marital life and family life um, can be remembered of such times which is also sad. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for, for this wonderful book. Um, and thanks for kicking off uh, your, uh, your talk at uh, the American 250 gathering in Williamsburg. That was a, that was an amazing evening. I long remember, including fireworks and, <laughs> and your talk there that night. I'm just going to assume that you always travel with fireworks, Ben. I, I do. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, I'm I'm a big believer in the Second Amendment as well, and <laughs> but certainly fireworks uh, all around the country. I think one of my one of my most vivid memories is on my way to my honeymoon. My wife and I were flying across the country on July Fourth, and it was a clear night, and we could look down and see all the fireworks going across uh, the nation from our flight. Um, that's something I'll long remember, just kind of that communal aspect of seeing the nation celebrate the 4th of July in uh, 1999. It was, it was great. But That's a lovely way to end a podcast on American history. Yes, yes. Thank you for this, and good luck with the book, and good luck with the next project. Thanks so much, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.